gentlemen, please welcome your hosts of that startup show, Benjamin Law and Ray Johnson. Johnston, this is Benjamin Law, and welcome to the spookiest ever episode of that startup show. Ooh. Hmm. This episode, we're going to look at ghost tech, a world where AI, cybersecurity, and chatbots all work undercover without our knowledge, harvesting our data and building simulations of ourselves to be used in theme parks. I ain't afraid of no ghost tech. That's right, folks. We're going to be busting out those Ghostbuster references. We're on the cutting edge here tonight. (laughs) We're talking about the Internet of Things. For instance, imagine if those old phone boxes we just emerged from were connected to the web. Come on. First there's Internet fridges and now you're telling me they're going to be putting the internet on phones. (laughs) Ludicrous. Look, an extra spooky thing about AI chatbots is that they're designed to simulate what humans would sound like if humans were devoid of all feeling. Like my ex when he asked for the love fern back. I hope you kept the partiality fern. No, you not. (laughs) You'll find a lot of ghost tech in cybersecurity applications. If you forget your password, bots ask you questions like your first pet's name, I now regret naming my dog Password. (laughs) And did you know, interestingly enough, hackers have the most success with companies where employees are overworked and underpaid. So basically every single startup. Bit of advice, maybe don't write back to that Nigerian prince. Hey, we make a very cute couple. I'm sorry, Your Highness. I hope your investments have been fruitful. But as AI advances, are we all going to live forever as androids? Like in Black Mirror. Only in the real world, it's less like bars of fluid that turn you into a simulation of you and more like an endless best-of-your-Facebook feed chatbot that you can pretend you're still cracking wise and reminiscing about that fancy dress party in 2008. Or an immortal troll. You know how I said I wasn't afraid of no ghosts? Yes. I've changed my mind. I don't want an AI virtual version of me out there. What if it sends out that perfect tweet I've always dreamed of? Well, I'm sorry, but it's bound to at some point between now and eternity. Defeated by virtual me, my ultimate nemesis. I'm looking forward to virtual Ray. What are you saying? Just, it'd, it'd be interesting. I'm not, I'm not saying I want you to die. It kind of sounds like you are. Or is that virtual Ben talking? You'll never know. (laughs) Well, better AI versions of ourselves and ghosts may be everywhere. Just so long as it's not clowns in drains. All float down here, Ben. (laughs) Thanks, Sarah. We're talking ghost tech. The unseen world of things on the other side of the computer screen. Chatbots, cybersecurity, and internet-enabled devices. Google assistants are now sticking natural turns of speech, like ums, into their speech synthesis. So you really believe it's a person. When my Google assistant says um, I assume it's because the Wi-Fi's dropped out because it's Australia. Though I did replace Siri's voice with the sound of a British butler, so I can go back to asking Jeeves again. So much more polite than that horrible bing. 
Is that racist? <laughs> now, here to help us peek under the bonnet are two experts in the field. Our first guest is more than an expert in cybersecurity. As CEO of Ost Cyber, she has been committed to establishing a cybersecurity growth centre to position Australia as a key centre for cybersecurity research and innovation. Would you please give a warm welcome to Michelle Price? <laughs> I have bought a friend. I have indeed. This is Cyberu. Cyberu is Ost Cyber's mascot. Mm. So I feel like Cyberu and Uniru might just make friends with each other. Oh, oh lovers. Ooh. <laughs> that wasn't in the script. <laughs> Our second guest is an authority on reality, whether virtual, augmented, or mixed. That's all types except actual reality. In real life, he's the founder and CEO of Foria and his mission is to transport you to places in different realities. Please welcome Trent Clues de Castella. Okay. A little bit surreal. A little yeah. bit like a simulation, I think. <laughs> Are we here or not? I don't, don't know. Don't make me think too deeply. Okay, so first <laughs> up, a question for you both. Mm. Ghost tech and AI is creeping into our lives, often in ways that we're not even really aware of. So the big one, are we headed for human obsolescence? And will we even know if it's happened? <laughs> I love that. Uh, so, yes, we are, and no, we're not going to become obsolete. I don't think we will anyway, but I think we are colliding. We're heading towards that collision of the, uh, I guess, the technology with humans. And uh, I, I remember sort of saying as a kid, I can't wait to have the USB uh, port in the back of my head. Well, isn't that sort of now obsolete? So, uh, but I don't think we'll get uh, taken out of the equation. I think we'll have bits put in us but I don't think you can take out the emotion of a human. I don't think you can replicate that. What about you, Trent? What are your thoughts on this? It's definitely a thought and a question that keeps me up at night, actually. <laughs> I think um, we're already, in many ways, a little bit obsolete. Ooh. We like to use these tools to make our lives a little bit easier, and so I'd like to think optimistically that we can leverage you know, a new tool set to help us empower and augment the things that we're already doing that we consider human. So hopefully technology and humanity collide in a really positive way for good, fingers crossed, otherwise it was a good fight. So augmented but not replaced. That's it, enhanced. Nice. Now we're going to play a game with you both called Hacker or Oscar. We're going to read some plausible and not so plausible scenarios and you need to tell us whether they are actual news stories or plots from movies. But first we get to test our buzzers, which is my favourite part. Trent? <laughs> Michelle? Excellent. All right. All right. So, are you ready to play Hacker or Oscar? Ready. Is this a real cybersecurity breach or a plotline from a movie? A thrill-seeking young hacker gains unauthorised access to dozens of software company systems and even hacks the phone company. After a two-and-a-half-year manhunt, the FBI arrest him and convince a judge that he could launch nuclear weapons by whistling into the telephone. After being released from prison, he becomes a system security expert 
for the FBI. Hacker or Oscar? Press your buzzers when you know the answer. Hacker. And the answer is Hacker. This is the story. You did good, you did good, straight off the bat. It's the story of Kevin Mitnick, which was the basis for the heavily fictionised movie Trackdown. I wish you could launch Nukes by Whistling. I'd feel fine if it was to the tune of the end of the world as we know it. I see what you did there. <laughs> Speaking of nukes, a high school student hacks into the American nuclear missile system and accidentally sets off a computer simulation that leads to potential nuclear war with Russia. Hacker or Oscar? Ooh. I'm going to take a risk here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oscar. That's a movie! Ooh. That's correct! Yes! It's the plot of War Games, starring Matthew Broderick in 1983. Of course, it's fictional. In real life, it might be the Russians doing the hacking and the Americans getting ready to go nuclear. <laughs> All right. Next up, a group called the Guardians of Peace hack a movie studio to prevent the distribution of a film satirising the dictator of a totalitarian state. The Guardians release thousands of embarrassing internal emails, leak unreleased films and threaten terror attacks on cinemas. Hacker or Oscar? Ooh. Hacker. That is real. Yeah. Even though it is about a movie. Yeah, so Sony was hacked in 2014 to stop them releasing the comedy The Interview. Apparently Kim Jong-un doesn't find movies about his assassination funny. And I hear he only gave it half a star. <laughs> Next question. A security software mogul moves to the Central American jungle to start a biotech company. He starts hanging out with gangsters and ends up fleeing the country after being implicated in his neighbour's murder. He then uses his notorious return to the US as a platform to run for president. Hacker or Oscar? Gotta be Oscar. No, that's real. <laughs> That was John McAfee, creator of McAfee Security Software. Sounds like he definitely needed to keep his antivirus up to date. Hey, hey. <laughs> All right, Hacker or Oscar, a city on the verge of bankruptcy due to the decline of the auto industry, outsources its policing to a private corporation. The company puts cybernetically enhanced cops on the street to restore peace to the violent, crime-ridden metropolis. Hacker or Oscar? Oscar. That is a movie. <laughs> it's Robocop. <laughs> <laughs> but in the act of life imitating art, the city of Detroit did go bankrupt in 2013. We are yet to see cyborg cops, though. We only have 10 seconds to comply. And that's how the game ends. The scores are absolutely stunning. I wish I could share them with you, but they're triple encrypted. Now, earlier this year, it was discovered by cybersecurity experts that every Intel processor made in the last 10 years has a backdoor known as Spectre. Can we stop our devices from spying on us now and in the future? Such a good question. Uh, so the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think there's two factors to that and one is around making sure that we are thinking much more about cyber resiliency at the beginning. So we, we refer to that as secure by design. 
Uh, so thinking about cybersecurity at the beginning, which actually has lots of positive ramifications for things like privacy. Uh, but the other side of it is actually us humans, us lowly humans, actually caring a lot more about what we're using and how we use it. Uh, so absolutely, Spectre was something that sort of almost brought the world to its knees uh, because Intel has been so, um, I guess, successful in getting into most of the sort of mainstream devices that we know. Uh, but with around about 40 billion devices now floating around uh, the planet, including up in the sky now, um, and that's not just satellites, there's things called drones now as well, uh, delivering Mexican food to us. Uh, you know, there's, uh, there's a real need for us to, to be thinking about this in a much uh, better way. Uh, and the solutions are already there to help us get there. Uh, we need to create the right kinds of incentives, both economically but also socially, to care more about building it in at the beginning. Why do you think people don't care? We want convenience. Uh, I think as humans, we just want it to happen super fast. And of course, the commercial imperative is to get to market as quickly as possible. And the cybersecurity part of the equation can be challenging, so it can slow things down. Uh, but that is also changing. It's getting quicker to apply security at the beginning rather than at the end. And I think actually at the end of the day, we need to remember that the cost of these compromises to everyone is so high now that we need to think about what the negative impact is of not doing something about it. Uh, and if we think about, for all of us here, what we share in common is that if we don't have internet connectivity, our lives have ended. Ooh. You know, if we can't access our smartphone for more than five minutes, we feel like we're missing out or we can't function. Right through to people who actually have medical devices inside their bodies that literally do rely on that connectivity to stay alive. Uh, so I think that um, it's starting to change on the care factor, but we need to think about it constantly in different ways. Mm. Nice. It's amazing. I couldn't agree more. I think um, I definitely appreciate maybe a little bit more of a naive perspective. I've maybe given up a little bit of hope. I feel like it's um, maybe I've got nothing to hide, but at the end of the day, I like to think that the applications and programs that are monitoring my behaviours are actually hopefully learning from my habits to help me live more efficiently. So if we think about wayfinding or how we can leverage this technology to help us make more informed decisions because it can provide it in a suggestive way in the future. So I'd like to think, hopefully, fingers crossed, no one takes uh, advantage of my um, lack of Band-Aid sticking over my <laughs> web camera. And, yeah, we'll see how time goes. Uh, Trent, you talk about having nothing to hide. Let's take that concept <laughs> further. We're now seeing a world where facial recognition technology has resulted in this hyper-realistic world of video and news stories, these so-called deep fakes. So how do we protect our own identities in the future? And how do we make sure that we don't end up in deep fake porn? With our, with our faces being used against our will. Wow. This is Ben's deepest, darkest fears being exposed. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the most bizarre end of the spectrum, but we've already mm. started to see videos where someone like Barack Obama is actually saying stuff realistically yep. that he didn't actually say. Mm. Definitely presents a lot of really interesting questions. Um, obviously, fake news is, has been a very pressing topic uh, in today's big wide world, but I'd like to think, hopefully through things like uh, cryptocurrency or blockchain or smart contracts, we have a means to authenticate information, a way to verify that this content that is maybe attributed to you as an individual is actually um, sort of granted ownership in a way that you can make sure that it's not going to be exploited and used behind you in the blackmail perspective. <laughs> is that authentication technology foolproof though, Michelle? It's not. And I think it's important to remember that at the moment we don't have a silver bullet. 
And so when things are oversold as being so silver bullets, we then become even more complacent, uh, which is why I think, again, it comes back to that care factor. It's more about being resilient. Mm. So we say in the cybers, uh, it's not if, it's when you're going to be compromised, whether that's at the individual level of your identity right through to whole nations. Uh, through things like elections or government services and things like that. Uh, so caring a bit more, I think, is so so important uh, to make sure that um, we are building the constructs that we prefer to have in place. If we're not caring, others will make the decisions for us and they might not be the decisions that we want to have made for us. Mm-hmm. So that authentication is absolutely at the very core of everything that we need to do now, as well as making sure that we retain that curiosity that humans have, if it doesn't look just that little bit quite right, it's probably not. So ask the question, is it right? Uh, And that's why we know that Barack Obama was not actually himself in those videos because it wasn't just a little bit quite Mm. right. Uh, And at the moment, at least, uh, the AI technology that we have available to us uh, isn't smart enough, but is being built with all of these preconceptions in place. Uh, So I think that as long as we keep talking about it and we design what it is that we want these uh, sets of technologies to do and they are resilient, it's all about how we respond to when we have been compromised. Mm. That's the most important. Don't shove it under the rug. You'll get found out. (laughs) And it's far more scary when you get found out than if you actually front up and take responsibility for it. Now, quantum computing, we're not quite there yet. We're getting closer every day. We're so close. But it's likely to be able to crack any form of encryption in the future. Like, obviously, anything now it would be able to take care of. But in the future as well, will we have to find something else that computers can't crack to protect our privacy? Well, in my view, uh, no. Uh, I think that, um, so right now, as much as we don't have uh, quantum computing at commercialisable scale, Mm. we do have quantum encryption at commercialisable scale. Uh, So we actually have an Australian company that is one of the world's leading companies on quantum encryption, Quintessence Labs. It's an Oz cyber company. Uh, So plug and shout out for them. Uh, So quantum encryption is already here. When we enter into a quantum world, all of the technologies will catch up or they'll be on the cutting room floor. Mm. There will be a period of time, though, where we have legacy systems that do have to catch up, and that's when we have to absolutely have our eyes on because the bad guys will be taking advantage of that if we don't have our eyes on. Uh, But I do think that it's just that next step change. It's a bit like when, you know, we had went from the desktop computer to the laptops. Everything kind of catches up, but there's that lag period that's the most concerning part. Interesting. I guess similarly, there's, it feels like there's multiple ways to try and defend yourself from an attack. So I was just reading recently how Google, um, out of all of their employees, not one of them has been exposed due to the simplicity of two-factor authentication. Mm. And so I wonder if there's mechanisms that could be, you know, analogue or potentially, you know, quite mundane or simple in a way that don't have to rely on the sophistication of quantum computing to protect us. Mm. Definitely. Now, in all of this, we're having this conversation with a set of embedded embedded cultural values. And in countries like China, citizens might not necessarily expect privacy. So how is cyber security impacted by ideology? Significantly. Uh, And I think that when we look across the world... It's a bit like humans in the sense that no two countries are actually the same. Mm. 
So whether you're China or you're Vanuatu or you're Estonia or you're Spain or you're Argentina, mm. that's a really good comparison. They're not the same countries. Uh, so I think that in the future, technologies that are cyber resilient and are adaptable to each of the different communities and societies that we have globally will be the ones that actually rise above mm. the mega conglomerates that we have today. Sorry, Zuck. Uh, so, you know, I think those that can adapt and take account of those cultural uh, norms that exist in local co uh, constructs as well as global uh, will the ones that kind of rise up and uh, take advantage of the quantum age. Mm. It's definitely really interesting when we start considering technology and ideology and the divergence and the convergence of the two. I'm really interested in how we can actually utilise technology to enable more humanity. And so there's obviously some fears that feel that they're often propelled through science fiction and the media that quickly go to the worst case scenario. But what if these new capabilities could actually unlock uh, new opportunities for us to really tap into our inner humanity, give us more freedom, less time distracted and monotonous things and more time with each other and connecting with people. And so hopefully in the future, you know, we can have a tech enabled ideology that really is focused around humanity. And there's the opportunity to learn from the way technologies are implemented globally as well. I know recently there were some issues with the use of facial recognition technology in order to identify potential criminals. You know, it's, it's something that we're doing here as, as kind of like a, an after-the-fact thing. You know, when you go into a stadium, you're getting your face scanned, it gets checked with the database. If there happens to be a riot, you know, you'll, you'll probably get pulled up. But in the UK, when they use this and they were actually arresting people, mm. it was largely highly inaccurate and they were arresting the wrong people. Mm. So what kind of lessons you know, can we learn from technologies being globalised like this? So firstly, uh, to think about it before you deploy it, I think is the best <laughs> lesson from the UK experience. And think about the different circumstances where they can be most effective, mm. particularly when we're thinking about privacy and why you might have a conviction in the system, to take that um, example, uh, that might be something that's being reviewed, uh, might actually be, you know, being contested or actually has been appealed but not yet taken out of the system. Yeah. Uh, and so you think about all of those kinds of circumstances. Uh, timing is everything in technology. Uh, think about when to deploy. And even if you've decided to deploy the platform on the big games of soccer in uh, the UK where they've had lots and lots of problems with violence, do you deploy it every time? Mm -hmm. And do you deploy it at all parts of the game? You know, think, really thinking through that human uh, benefit, if you like, of applying the technology in different circumstances. And to think about the cultural sensitivities about uh, how, it, how you then action and follow up the findings of, of deploying the technology. Now, we're talking about technology as an, as an external thing. We're talking about the face, but our minds are like the last frontier when it comes to private domain. So what will happen when we hand it over to a network or we upload it to the cloud? Will we cease to exist as individuals or are there other ramifications we should be considering too? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Need a little bit to process that. <laughs> But Just this, a superficial but, question but, here on that yeah. startup show. But this, this is something that people are already exploring in tech, mm -hmm. right? How our minds can interact with technology interfaces. One of the areas that we've been playing a lot with is the AR cloud, and it's really how content and information is not existing in the ether up there, but actually applying to our physical environment. So as we can see from the two demos we've had before, we've got 
uh, media and content now having more meaning based on the relationship to the physical space that we share. And so in many ways, it's already happening where we're getting these uh, digital twins of physical environments that are really changing the way that we can interact with these environments. And so you can imagine, obviously, there's some Black Mirror references in there in terms of, you know, cloning your artificial self and the uh, potential implications of the social self that is this already artificial projection mm. that you're putting out there. But I can only imagine um, what's going to happen when we can actually start, you know, um, having eye tracking and actually absorbing the same content and information that you are on a daily basis and the kind of understanding that it can get about you as a user. So um, we'll see. Hopefully I can live on indefinitely, but I know some people might think a little bit differently to that. Mm. What about you, Michelle? I mean, technology hacking our minds, but what happens when our minds are hacked? Absolutely. I think uh, if you haven't seen it yet, uh, I, I strongly recommend watching uh, the movie Anon, which recently came out, which actually goes to what Trent's describing, where you're actually plugging in your eyes and you can see in your eyes all of the different kind of pieces of information uh, that are assigned to people. And it actually demonstrates what happens when it gets hacked. Uh, so, given that science fiction eventually always comes true, <laughs> let's learn from the script now <laughs> and figure out uh, how we actually deal with that in a more human way, thinking that, uh, about humanity. And also, I think, for, for all the startups out there, uh, you know, cloud solutions are actually the best way for you to ensure the security of your perimeter. As long as the cloud provider does provide you with assurances around the security of their cloud, and you know some of the best cloud services in the world, like AWS and Google and Microsoft, are secure mm. uh, in that resilient kind of way. Mm. And so the best way that startups can actually get that sort of first initial out of the box kind of assurance there is to be thinking about how the cloud can enable a lot of that mobility and agility in the technology development phases, uh, and think about going to sort of over the horizon, if our minds were hacked, what would you do to respond? How would you actually be able to authenticate whether or not it is real or not? Uh, we really do need to start thinking about those issues now and do them in such a big hands way as how they impact on ideologies, as well as right back to how, do, how is it going to affect my accessibility to my iPhone uh, in, in part of how I kind of get onto the socials and get the tram at the right time and all of those kinds of things. Mm. This is terrifying and wonderful. <laughs> but I do want to know, is it possible in the future that when we physically die, ourselves can live on in some sort of cyber ghost way through you know, virtual reality, augmented reality, some other type of, you know, not real reality? Is it possible? Is it actually possible? Ghost in the shell. <laughs> yeah. I guess it's um, really like... To how far and to what degree do you really consider it to be uh, yourself, yeah. right? So there's these digital artifacts, artifacts of yourself that would live on. So we see a lot of the content that we're creating in 360 and virtual reality now, which are kind of like memories. They're memories that you can go transport yourself back in time and relive a unique moment. And so one of the things that we try and do is create now, we have the tools to create as many memories as we can. So you can imagine in a way, maybe you forget who you are as a self, maybe you're going through Alzheimer's or dementia. Mm. To be able to go back in time and, and relive one of your fondest memories it could be your, your mm. child's wedding, for instance. And so I think that there's some already sort of, we're already playing in this space now in terms of being able to recreate moments of ourselves. 
and project them into the future. Mm. And then as we extend into augmented reality and smart glasses in the future, I think this, uh, the amount of data and information that we're constantly you know, feeding off from our environment about our own habits and behaviours are only going to be learning more about ourselves. So mm. time will tell. Well, Trent, what are some of the emerging AR integrations that we're seeing now that will give kids born today a completely different understanding of the world as we know it? Well, firstly, they seems to be um, children these days don't have any say at all about what their uh, social media profile is. It's already put up there into the ether before they even can talk or walk. Um, I think some of the, the new capabilities that we're seeing are actually more around shared experiences. We're actually seeing uh, a new utility that isn't just you know, playing a game on your phone looking at a screen, but it's actually opening it up into a more envi uh, spatial environment now. So we can see Sam over there is actually in virtual reality and he's creating art in 3D. And as we can understand, he's doing it in an individual way. But you can imagine as we extend beyond that and we can actually leverage these tools to connect and to collaborate and to co-create and uh, feed into things like education, there's a whole amount of new possibilities for the next generation. They're going to supercharge their minds. So I'm excited to see how that happens. If VR can feel real, right, and we can all socialise in VR, what's actually stopping it being a better alternative to real life? Internet speeds? Oh, no. <laughs> Just a hit on that Might issue. Might be a slight speed bump. Ah, speed bump. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I'd love to hear your perspective on that. I do think that um, part of it is actually the infrastructure that we have available to us now. <laughs> I love that all your answers are so logical and practical. <laughs> I need this. <laughs> The infrastructure needs to kind of get there a bit better. Um, but, you know, we are staring down the barrel of, uh, you know, the sort of old Moore's Law. Moore's Law is kind of almost going to eat itself at some point uh, <laughs> where, you know, the, the sort of timeframes are becoming in minutes. But the physical infrastructure is still a barrier, absolutely. And um, we can think about how technology can help us there. I mean, I look at the Pacific and uh, there are island nations right now that don't have any physical infrastructure in place because they are relying on satellite infrastructure for their mm. Wi-Fi or they're relying on balloons for Wi-Fi. Uh, so we can be thinking about these things in different ways, but at the end of the day, you know, there is kind of a, a, a sense of finite nature to the infrastructure that we have. Uh, we have to solve those problems ourselves. Cyber, cyberspace is the only domain of human interaction that we've created ourselves. Mm. Uh, we've created so many problems in doing that. Um, <laughs> Of course, but so much opportunity. Uh, so I think once we solve that infrastructure problem, then perhaps we really will be facing a situation where the virtual is, is uh, much more fun and uh, much more engaging than the real. But I think we're also forgetting that there's a thing called nature here as well. Uh, that, you know, somebody said to me today that uh, there's some work going on at the moment right now in one of our cooperative research centres to replicate the surface of dragonfly wings because it is the only surface on the planet that we know of that bacteria can't physically grow on. Oh, wow. Like, fascinating stuff, right? Yeah. The virtual world does not give us that. Mm. It literally doesn't give us that. Mm. I don't think we're going to get to a time where that changes unless we end the world. Mm. There's, there's a couple of little things if I could just chime in. Yeah. Um, so one thing that's happening now, we touched on a little bit earlier, is um, there's an awkward point where computer graphics are getting so good but then they dip into this area of um, it's an uncanny valley. Yeah. So you're looking at it and you know it's not quite the real thing. 
But what we're finding now is some of the new graphics cards are actually able to recreate the same physics and lighting that we perceive with our natural eyes. And so we're about to cross through that threshold and we're about to be at a point where you're not really going to be able to decipher between what is real and what isn't. But I think what's exciting is actually if you can look at it in a way where uh, you can leverage these tools to really help people in really unfavorable, undesirable situations. So, for instance, one of the best use cases that we feel virtual reality can provide value is actually taking VR into hospitals. Mm. So how can you help people get out of situations that they can't because they're actually physically trapped in a bed for seven mm. weeks? And so leveraging these tools in a way that you can actually use as an aid for someone that is in a um, you know, an awful situation is hopefully a good place that we can start. And if we keep in the back of our mind the implications of addiction that we're already facing with computer games as it stands today, we can hopefully guide our, our children and the next generation in a good, in a good path forward. Trent, Michelle, thank you so much for that fascinating, optimistic and sometimes chilling conversation. <laughs> so many questions answered, which I'm sure we've all wondered about as we've sat in front of our evil laptops. <laughs> and that is all we have time for as we have other realities to return to. Please thank our panel, Michelle and Trent. <laughs> Join us next time as we take a look at the kind part of the world of goody tech. Can you make a difference and make a profit? Isn't that what that startup show is all about? Are you getting paid? See you next time. Rap, 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 rap.